Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. All right, let's jump into Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 4. We're going to get through only four verses today. So um, we've been we've been in Colossians for a while now, um, three and a half months to be exact. Uh, back in May, we don't normally do that. Of those of you that are new, um, we don't normally uh, stay in the same sermon series for that long. Normally, we have a, like a topical sermon series, kind of every month, right about. But back in May, I felt like God was calling us um, to just dive into the Book of Colossians slowly, verse by verse, and just see what He would reveal to us. So um, it's been quite interesting. Uh, it's been quite a journey, and as of today, we are officially halfway through the book. <laughs> so, yeah, Christmas in Colossians, here we come. Uh, other people talking about baby Jesus, not us, we're talking about Colossians. Um, no, you just got to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, and as you are obedient, man, God reveals so many really cool things through this book and uh, has been speaking to so many of us, and so um, I definitely don't regret jumping into Colossians, and I don't regret that we're only halfway through. Um, the truth is the first half of the book, uh, the first two chapters, chapter one and two, is laying the foundation. Really, Paul's been laying the foundation for everything that we're about to learn here in the coming weeks and perhaps months. Um, he's, he's laying that foundation. It's, it's so important uh, in his argument, actually, in the argument of the book of Colossians, that we would understand some of the things he's been sharing. Um, uh, for those of you that are new, Colossians is a book of the Bible. It's in the New Testament. It was written around 60 AD, so 60 years after Christ. It was written to a church in a place called Colossus, which was kind of a new church. It was about five years old. We were a four and a half years old church, and so I think that's applicable. It was kind of a newish church that was planted by a man named Epaphras, and Epaphras was saved under Paul's ministry. He came to know Christ under Paul's ministry. And so um, Paul wrote the letter of the Colossians to the Colossians because he, while he was in prison, Epaphras came and shared with him the good news, number one, the good news, that this church had been birthed out of Paul's ministry, that Paul had, had ministered uh, to Epaphras and that some good stuff was coming out of that. It's always nice to get some good news, you know. It's nice to hear that that it's working. It's nice to hear that, man, all of all of the effort, all the stuff that Paul's been putting into his ministry is finally bearing some fruit. So he's excited about that. We see that in chapter 1. Um, but he's also a bit concerned. Epaphras brought some concerns to Paul uh, about the church in Colossians, that they were beginning to fall into a false doctrine, false teaching, uh, which we believe is uh, what is modern, what is not modernly known as Gnosticism. This is a, a form, really, of Judaism and mysticism and Christianity all mashed together, um, kind of like Austin, uh, just all squashed in there. All these different views put put together into one general odd consensus, and it was gaining traction actually in 60 A.D. and it, it continued would continue to gain, gain traction right on through uh, uh, about 150 200 A.D. It would be it would be uh, uh, one of the, the 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 side effects I guess of Christianity blossoming. Um, so you may have heard of the Gnostic Gospels. There's a lot of Gospels that the Gnostic writers wrote about. There's the Gospel of Judas, which was recently discovered. Well, like half a quarter of a quarter of a page was discovered. 
um, the Gospel of Judas. And so there's a lot of sort of the Gospel of Solomon. It's really quite interesting. They, they, they wrote their own set of Gospels, and they had their own set of, of what the Gospel actually was. And Paul, though, is trying to help the church not fall into that. Instead, he's trying to keep them focused on the main thing, which is Jesus. Jesus is life. He is, he is what life is all about, but he is also the source of life, and he is life itself. Jesus said, he said, I've come that, that they may have life, that you all may have life and have it more abundantly, but he did not intend to give us something that was separate from himself. He intended to give us himself. So he really said, I've come that, that you may have me and have me more abundantly because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is life, and that's nowhere more apparent than in the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is said to be the most elevated view of Jesus in all of Scripture, um, and that's, that's certainly true. And now here in the middle of the book, Paul is about to take a corner. He's about to turn. This is the fulcrum of the entire book. Um, not only is it smack dab in the middle, literally, but it's also in the middle of Paul's argument, and he's beginning to take a turn where he's going to get very practical. Um, he's, he's, he's built this foundation that Jesus is life, and we're going to review that here in a minute, but he's built this foundation, and now he's moving forward into what that means to our everyday life. In other words, Paul is going to answer the question, so what? Uh, which every good preacher needs to answer in every sermon. Um, it's good to get some information, but then you need to say, so what? Like, why do I need to know this? Why is this important to my life? Hopefully, um, as you've been at City Chapel, you've been hearing some so what's. You've been hearing some ways to apply it to your life. But Paul, in his letter, this is chapter three is his so what chapter. Chapter three explains why you need to know chapters one and chapter two. And God always has a reason why he's trying to teach you something. There's an, there's an application to it. So we see that in chapter three. But that, that's kind of a teaser for next week. We're not actually going to get into that this week. Um, this week, we're going to end on the last few verses of doctrine that Paul really builds out, and it's uh, verses 1 through 4. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Now, he's referring to stuff he was talking about in chapter 2, where we were buried with Christ in baptism, where we were crucified with Christ. He's, he's, he's looking back. We've, been, we've died with Christ. So he says, if you've died with Christ, and that is an if, if then you've died with Christ, then you have been raised with Christ. So this is what we ought to do. This is the practical the application of that. We need to set our hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died to earthly things. You, your earthly self, your, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, that's where we got the title from, Jesus is life. When, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear in glory. Christ is your life. So just, just to do a little recap, those of you that were not here with us, um, you can go back and listen to the podcast or you can go back on Facebook and watch the videos, but um, we've been preaching through Colossians chapters 1 and 2, and, and in Colossians chapter 1, Paul makes the, the, the extraordinary claim, and he backs it up, that Jesus is life. He is what life is all about. He is an important thing to life. And, and one of the things you really need when it comes to life is hope. Try living life without hope. Uh, it's not much of a life at all. Um, humans need some belief that something will get better at some point. 
We have to have hope. You try going on without hope, uh, you won't have life very long. And so at the very beginning of chapter one, Paul calls Jesus our hope. He says that we have this great hope that is laid up for us in heaven. And so he, hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Jesus is our hope, and he is in heaven. And so uh, the Bible calls this an anchor for the soul in, in the book of Hebrews, that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Well, well, an anchor for a, a boat is something that's, that's weighted down. There's a weight to a rope, and that weight is dropped down through the water where all the waves are and things are crazy, and the weight goes all the way down to the bottom of the ocean where it is not crazy and where it holds the boat in place. Well, if you need a, an anchor for a boat, it needs to go down. But if you need an anchor for a soul, it needs to go up. And so Paul says, man, there's an anchor for the soul, and it is found in Christ. That, on the, that if you'll hold on, if you'll put your hope in Jesus, then on the other end of that rope is hope. You might be down to the, to the end of your rope. But if at the, end of your, at the other end of your rope is Jesus, then there's hope at the end of your rope. And it rhymes, so it must be true. So that, that was my sermon like three and a half months ago. I still remember it. Uh, we've got to hold on to our hope, which is Jesus. You have to hold on to that through whatever's going on in your life. Through what, you got to raise a hallelujah no matter what's going on in your life. I still have hope that, that things are going to get better. I still have hope that I'm going to get better. I still have hope that my country can get better. I still have hope that my city, I still, no matter what I'm facing, I can live with hope if I lift my eyes to things above. So this is one of the keys. I'm telling you, if you, if, if, if you want to have a PhD in anxiety, just try fixing your hope on a moving target. Try fixing your hope on a person or a spouse or a girlfriend or boyfriend or a job or a political system or a, or a candidate or what you try fixing your hope on something down here and you will, you won't, you won't sleep well at night. You won't be able to concentrate or focus. You will, you will be so anxious, so nervous. If you fix your hope on the economy, you'll be so anxious and so nervous. If you fit, no, it, whatever is down here, fix your hope down here. And I'm telling you, you, you won't have an anchor. You won't have an anchor for your soul. But Jesus is eternal. Jesus is solid. Jesus is unchanging. Uh, we talked about that in God class this past Tuesday. You can fix your hope on Jesus because he is is so solid. And so he's the, he's the hope on the end of our rope. He's the anchor for the soul. And, and he is the one who through the Father qualifies us in chapter one. You might feel unqualified. You might feel that you don't have a track record to be able to approach God or to be able to live for God or to be able to do anything for God or to be able to have hope. Well, guess what? God's the one who qualifies you. He's the one who puts you through the process that prepares you for what he's already placed inside of you. Because he's not only the one who qualifies you, he's also the one who has called us in chapter one, the one who calls us. And so if you want to know what your purpose is, if you want to know what your calling is in life, um, you can, yeah, you can, you can take a disc profile. Uh, you can see what your personality is. You can take a spiritual gift test, which we do here at City Chapel to help people sort of find their, I think Rick Warren calls it their shape. Uh, each S-H-A-P stands for something does that. Um, and, 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 and that's helpful. There's classes and stuff. That's wonderful. But there's nothing as, as powerful as getting to know Jesus. When you get to know Jesus, then he tells you what your purpose is. He tells you what your calling is. For, for hundreds of years, people haven't had these classes and personality tests. You don't have to go through all of that. You can just get to know Jesus. And Jesus knows what he's placed inside of you. And so he knows how to call it out of you. 
No matter how much it's been covered up by sin and mistakes and, and no matter how much it's been covered up by your environment and by the ones who raised you and people that spoke into you and how you were abused. And it's been, it's been, it's been, it's been covered with all this dirt, but the one who placed it there to begin with, he knows what's there, what's still there, what remains there. And he will call it out of you, which is why I say you got to get to Jesus. You, Jesus is life. The church is not life. The pastor is not life. Small groups are not life. Attending church, as good as it is, I'm glad you all are here because it would be awkward if you weren't. But honestly, it's not. this is not it. This is not the be all in it. This will not move you from one step to the next. You must get to Jesus. You must discover Jesus. You must come to know Jesus because he is life and he knows what's in. I don't know what's inside of you. I don't, I don't know what's best for you. Your spouse doesn't even know what's best for you. Your parents don't know what's best for you. Your family doesn't know you because they didn't come up with you. They didn't invent you. And you know how babies come about, right? Like, yeah, husband and wives just having fun. And boom, there you are. That's what, that's what we were telling our kids. You know, we're like, man, well, I, didn't, I don't know you. Like, you you're an enigma. My, my kids are like they're part me, part my wife, and part alien. I don't know who they are or what they're thinking half the time because I didn't make them. I created the circumstances, yeah, that could help, but God intended them to come to life. God birthed them. God breathed the breath of life into them. And they are, they are special, not because I love them, but because God created them. So whether I see value in them or not, whether your parents saw value in them or not, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that the one who made you still remembers why. It's good to, to have family. It's good to have people that you can love, but you've got to recognize they'll never really know you the way that God knows you. Jesus knows us perfectly and he loves us perfectly this is the amazing thing about jesus and so he's the one who qualifies us he is after all the firstborn over all creation in chapter one it says that he's the firstborn which means he's the greatest over all created things that's that's created things like physical things but it's also created ideas all religions it, it's interesting how and we, we pointed out how most major religions um have basically adopted jesus as their as their stepchild you know uh, like, the, like, like, uh, like, like in the Quran, Jesus apparently is 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 a prophet of Allah. In in the Quran, he's he's a he's their prophet, and and it's so interesting to me how so many religions, uh, the Hari Krishnas, oftentimes say that Jesus is a bit of an expression of Krishna. He's the he 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 was a good expression of Krishna. It's interesting how so many world religions adopt Jesus and say, yeah, he's on our team. And yet Jesus said of himself, I'm not on anyone's team. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I am my own team. You know, I mean, Jesus stood in the, in the, in the center of human history. Literally, human history is divided by his life. He stood in the center of human history as the, the focal point of human history, as the focal point of all of life. John says in his gospel that Jesus was the light that shone in the darkness at the very beginning when God said, let there be light. And that light started bursting into creativity and so many things. And even scientists now are, are looking back and they can see this time in, in, in time and space con, uh, continuum when light just bursted out of nowhere. 
and suddenly creativity and creation just started happening. And we know who the light is, that Jesus is light and he is the life of men. So when he said, I've come that you may have life, he really meant I've come that you may have me. And to get to know him is to get to know not only the source of the universe, not only the source of all created things, but the one that is continuing to hold all things together as Colossians chapter one says that he is not only the beginning, the initiator of all things, he is also the holder of all things. And if you zoom in on atoms at the atomic level, you find that they're spinning, things are spinning around energy. And we believe that Jesus is that light. He is that energy. When you break down all matter, it basically breaks down to light, to energy. And so he is the energy. He is the light holding all things, not just Christian things, not just, not, not just good people, but the just and the unjust. He is holding all things together, all things spiritual, all things physical. And so, and so the reason why that's important is because once you understand the dominance of his kingdom, once you understand the greatness of his kingdom, once you understand who he really is, all of these other substitutes fail in comparison. All of these other made-up ways of getting close to God start to look incredibly pale, even like Christian religious versions. They start to look really cheap and really ineffective and really uh, just, just gra grasping at straws, trying to create something that could possibly have a positive effect when Jesus is the one who initiated this whole thing. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the one who holds it all together. And he is the head of the church. Toward the end of chapter one, we saw that he is the head of the church, meaning that the entire church gets its life from him, not from a denomination, not from a preacher, not from a pastor, not from prayer warrior, but the entire church gets its life from a program or an organization or a youth ministry, but from Jesus. So above any of those things, we hope you get connected to the youth ministry. We hope you get connected to the worship team and we hope that you like the preaching, but we want you to get to know Jesus. If all you do is join a church entirely miss the point of the church. The church is to bring you into contact with the head. The head of the church is Jesus. He is in charge. He's calling the shots. He's giving life. He's, he's healing. He's renewing. He's restoring. And he's the one who's calling, calling us. And he's also the source of our hope, our hidden hope, which we talked about in the beginning of chapter two. And he's also the one who equips us to really, to really fight for the things that he wants us to fight for. Chapter two, so in chapter one, it's all about Christ's superiority. Uh, he's above everything. He's better. Uh, chapter one could be labeled just Jesus is better. Whatever you got, whatever, you, whatever, you, whatever you're holding on to, man, Jesus is better. Um, chapter two is really about the sufficiency of Jesus, that Jesus is enough. Because what happens is, you find Jesus and you see in him this strong foundation. It's amazing. He said he is the rock of salvation. And, and we just recently got back from a vacation. We went up to Maine along the coast and we got to hang out uh, along the coast, have some great lobster and butter. And uh, it was amazing. I gained seven pounds in eight days. It was, it was awesome because all I was eating was like protein, like just lobster every day. And, I, I, and even though I work out a lot, um, it just, I don't know. It just is, it was unfortunate. I do a lot of sit-ups. I get up from my bed and I lay back down at night. It's, it's a lot of work. Um, anyway, no, I mean, it was amazing. One of the really cool things about Maine is like, you don't see this much in a landlocked sort of state, especially your central Texas, but, and where there's massive bodies of water, 
there are also massive rocks where those bodies of water meet the shore. Because for thousands of years, it's just been pummeling the shore and tearing away all the sediment and all this stuff. And you go to Maine and you see why they need those huge lighthouses because there are rocks, boulders like bigger than this stage, just just so solid, so firm that any boat run into that thing and it's toast. I mean, you know that thing's been there since the beginning of time and it's not going anywhere. Like it's so solid. And, and this is what Jesus is. He is the incredible, solid, reliable, firm foundation of all of life. And you don't have to be a Christian to recognize that. You, you, can, you can see the stability that he brings to life. You can see the joy that he brings to life. He is it. And this is what Paul is talking, all chapter one. But the problem is, after we see him, now the great question is, what is our response going to be? Are we going to build our life on him? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, he, he said, those who hear my teachings and do them are like a man who built his house on the rock. And the word for rock there is bedrock or the kind of rock that's near an ocean, it's exposed by the waves. He said, whoever hears my teachings and does them is like somebody who, who finds this amazing rock and says, man, this is what my house needs to be built on. This is what my, my dating relationships need to be built on. This is what my job security needs to be built on. This is what my life, I'm going to build my life, like the song that we sing, I will build my life upon, like I'm going to do it. And, 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 and so he, he, he obeys the words of Jesus and he piece by piece builds a life on the foundation of Jesus. And Jesus said that that guy, when the storm hits and life gets crazy and, and, and that guy will stay in his, his house will be safe because of the, the foundation, the slab that he's on. And then he said, but there are other types of people, those who hear my teachings and don't do them. Those people will be like those who build their house on the sand. And which is kind of strange because even in the ancient world, people didn't build houses on sand. Nobody builds a house right next to, like on the beach. That, that's a modern thing, beach houses, okay? Because back in the day, they said, that's crazy. Why would you, I mean, because the foundation, there's no foundation, man. You're on sand. It's one of the most porous material. Like, what are you going to do when the tide even comes up? Like, you're in trouble every night, you know? And Jesus said, well, well the reason why he's talking about sand is because sand is near the bedrock. Sand is near the kind of rock that Jesus is talking about. And so the, so the issue here is Jesus said some people will come across the rock of his teaching and say, wow, this is solid, this is amazing, I'm going to build my life on it. Other people will come across the rock of his teaching and say, wow, this is solid and amazing, I'm going to keep an eye on it. I'm not going to lose track, I'm going to build my house near the rock. I'm going to, uh, so why would you build your house in the sand? Because it's near the rock, right? And so, and so, and so many people, they find Jesus, and it's, and it's the best day of their life, and it's wonderful, and then... They say, well, I'm not going to move too far away from Jesus. I'm going to go visit him once a month at church just to make sure he's still doing good, make sure they're still treating him well, make sure, make sure you know, kind of like your friend in prison, you know, you just kind of go check, on, check in on him, so they're feeding him well. And, then, and, 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 and But we know where he is if we need him, right? Like I'll, I, I know where to run to if and when I need Jesus. And so the one who builds his life near Jesus is a complete disaster. Not when things are good. When things are good, both houses look, look the exact same. But it's when 
It's when difficulty comes. It's when life gets crazy. It's when the storm hits. That's when you realize. And then by then it's too late. It's too late to run to Jesus because you haven't spent the time building anything. And so crisis mode Christians usually don't last very long because they literally you have to pitch a tent on the rock and just hope to make it through that storm. And then you'll be faced with another decision. Okay, so now the storm's over. Am I going to build? Usually people are often content to build their life. What Paul is saying is that, is that chapter one is great. Jesus is it. He's the foundation. But man, if you don't build your life on him in chapter two, and this, is the, this is the tactic of the enemy. Okay, fine. You found Jesus. Lovely. Don't lose him. But don't get crazy. Don't get fanatical. Hold on to your Texas religion and, and you know, just kind of know where he's at at all times. Mention him, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> when you start to lose your voice. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I had some water up here. <laughs> you know, just kind of keep him around like some water if you need him. But by all means, don't, don't, don't get crazy. Don't, don't put all of your weight on him. I mean, because, you know, there's so many, so many things, other things out there, so many options out there, so many other things that you're missing by staying confined to this rock. And, um, and, and really, that's what chapter two is about. Paul is, <clears throat> is teaching us about some walls, some barriers that we could build around our faith. And you might say, well, barriers around faith just sounds, sounds limiting and it sounds exclusionary. And <clears throat> to some extent it is, because what happens is if you have the slab, that's good, but the enemy's always going to try to pull you off of that slab. <clears throat> and uh, hopefully I can make it through the sermon. Otherwise, we're going to have altar call real quick. Everybody just get saved. Um, <clears throat> uh, the enemy will always try to pull you off of that slab. And so there's three ways in chapter two that the enemy tries to pull us off. Number one is um, through what we call the traps. So he says, let no one ensnare you or let no one trap you. And um, that's, that's, that's a primary way that the enemy will pull us off, the off of the foundation because there are no traps on the foundation. So if you're stuck in a trap, then, then you're not on the foundation. And uh, the enemy will say, that's great, you found Jesus, cool. And I, and I know lots of people that have Jesus, but they also have this trap in their life. They also have sexual immorality in their life, which can be a trap. They also have an addiction in their life, which can be a trap. They also have their own ambition which can be a trap. They also have pride, which can trap you. Obviously, none of you struggle with that. I'm talking about everybody at the 9 o'clock service. So many traps in that service. You guys need to pray for them, seriously. Um, doesn't apply to you guys at all. But, but we, we, we dealt with a lot of those traps like pornography can be a trap that can, that can entrap you. And so, we, and so what, what, what I loved going through Colossians is we got, really got to see um, how – oh, thank you. This is cool. How, how the trap works, how the trap is based off of a false sense of what you should be. And what happens is sometimes even religion can be a trap. You can, you can be trapped in religion because religion can, you can come to a church service and the pastor can tell you, look, this is who God says that you are and it's free and it's wonderful and everything. And then he can tell you, all right, now go out and be who God says you are. And it's like, great. Now the weight is on me. I got to figure out how to be. Like God couldn't even make me be who he said that I was. He just kind of said it, threw it out there, threw the vision, and I got to go chase this thing? Religion can put so much weight on people's shoulders, and yet in chapter 2 we see that it is, it is Christ who has circumcised our hearts. 
So it's Christ who enables us and equips us to cut off some of these traps, cut away some of this, this stuff that, that, that clings to us. And he is the one who frees us. He is the one who creates the freedom inside of our lives. And so, and so even, uh, even good intentional people can sometimes take the load of burden uh, of change, place it on their own shoulders and try very hard to do it. And you can do it for a while, but Jesus is the one who creates lasting change. So that's the first thing is the trap. The second thing is the judgmental spirit. A judgmental spirit will pull you off of the, the slab foundation of Jesus. Um, either you're judging yourself or other people are judging you and you allow their judgments to affect you the way that they look at you, the way that they talk about you. And Paul deals with this very, very clearly. And he talks about how the way that they were being judged, they were being judged based on shadows of Jesus. That Jesus stood in the middle of time and cast a pretty long shadow across human history. And along the way, God was trying to explain to them who Jesus would be, which is what the shadow is about. You get to see the outline of Christ, but people were clinging to the shadow even after they met the person. So a good shadow of Christ would be uh, sacrificing animals as, as a shadow of things that were to come. A good shadow of Christ would be attending, uh, attending the, the, the tabernacle on the Sabbath. And even now today, people can really get confused with church attendance and get confused with giving and get confused with serving and think that, okay, now I've met Jesus because I met the church. That's not true. The church is a, it's, it's a shadow. It's an outline of a person. But, I mean, ask Peter Pan, and there's a big difference between meeting the shadow and meeting the person. Person can actually speak to you. The shadow is a dead thing. It's just an outline. Now, it lets you know if you're in or out, but the shadow doesn't speak to us. And so when we come to know Christ, we don't have to rely on the judgments of the shadow to see if we are in or outside of this particular religion. We meet the person, and he speaks to us about our position in him. And then thirdly, uh, we talked last week at the opening of the NFL season about the referees in our life. Paul says, don't let anyone disqualify you. And the word for disqualify is, is to umpire or to be a referee. Don't let any human take the role of the referee in your life. Well, what does the referee do? Well, he blows the whistle and he throws flags. So Thursday night, there was a number of flags going, the first NFL game. Um, and that's good. That's, the, that's their job to look for the bad stuff. And so instead, Colossians 3.15 says, let the Holy Spirit be the umpire. Let the Holy Spirit rule is what it says in the NIV, but it means to ump, same word, to umpire, to referee your life. Let the peace of God reign or rule in your heart. Let the peace of God be the ref. Let the peace of the Holy Spirit be the one to tell you whether you're out of bounds or not. Be the one. Let him be the one you look to to see if, if, if he did the play right. And instead, if we look to people, then what we'll end up doing is we'll end up pleasing people and we'll learn really good how to act really well, how to be polite and how to say the right things and how to, and, and how to acknowledge the right. And we'll, we'll understand the rules of, of social engagement so that people don't throw flags on us. Unless, of course, you get on Facebook, in which case, like, flags just start flying no matter what you say. Uh, you will get hit, pelted with a whole lot of flags on Twitter or whatever, uh, because everybody's so quick to let you know what's out of bounds and what's wrong about what you're saying. But when the peace of the Holy Spirit is your referee, one, he doesn't condemn you. He brings conviction. He'll let you know, but he'll always bring hope into you. He'll always say, look, this, this, is, this is how you, this is how you, like you, 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 can't grab the inside, all right, of the shoulder pads. You can just push on the other. Like, he will let you know 
what you can do to be better than you were before. The Holy Spirit as a referee will always make you better and not, not, not break you down. And so he says, build these walls around your life. Make sure that you, really some warnings, make sure that you don't transgress this boundary. Stay within this boundary. Make sure that it is only the peace of God, the Holy Spirit that is your referee. Make sure that you don't have any human judges. You're not submitting to, to people's judgments or judgments based on shadows of things which are really uh, just a shadow of Jesus. And thirdly, make sure that you, don't, that, you, that you don't allow any traps to ensnare you. Rather, stay on Jesus, Jesus' life. Uh, in chapter 3 now, he says, since you died with Christ, and uh, if you've died with Christ, then you've been risen with Christ. Now, as a believer, your, your life is, he says, hidden with God and, and Christ together. You and Christ are hidden with what does it mean to be hidden with God? Well, I think one thing that it means is that people can't see you. I'm a super deep preacher. This is really deep stuff, I'm telling you. Uh, no, I think it, it has a lot to do with the fact that when you build your life on Christ, so you have the slab, now you build the walls, and then you put the roof on that closes out the sun. People don't see you anymore. They see the house that you built. And I think this is the goal of every believer is that we would be so inside of Christ. Our lives would be so built on his teachings and on his person and on his character that when people who know us, when they see us, that they don't see us, they see Christ. They don't necessarily hear from our mouths our particular opinions, but they hear the opinions of Christ. That they, that they, that, as Paul says, it's like you died. It's literally like you died. When you die, your soul is removed from your body. That's what happens. And in this sense, when you die in Christ, your soul is removed from the things of this earth. You, you are, you're a completely different person. And so he says, man, you ought to seek the things that are above. You ought to seek the things which are above. You ought to go after those things. Because you are already dead to this stuff down here, you're living for another place, living for another time. And this is something I pray over City Chapel is that our eyes would be like stamped with eternity, that we would live our daily lives in light of that which is eternal, that we would think about heaven and hell. We would think about eternity more than just, it's not just a funeral sermon. It's not just something to think about whenever somebody dies, but this is, this is where all of us are going, to live with a view of eternity. I was talking to Roe this week um, about, uh, about a herded member of City Chapel um, that, that, that passed away a year ago this month. And I wasn't thinking about uh, Nick because of this sermon, actually. I was just thinking about it because it's September and uh, we had talked about him in staff meeting. And, 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 I, and, I was, and I was telling Ro, I said, I think probably the best thing about being a pastor is that, that I know that when I die, that I have somebody at heaven, in heaven waiting for me. Uh, like as soon as I go in to heaven, like I'm going to see Nick. And, and it's cool because I, I mean, my, my, my grandpa also, I believe, in heaven. And my grandma and having my other grandpa, I don't know where he was with God when he passed away. That was before I was even born. They have to ask my mom about that. But, um, but I, 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 do, I, I do know that there's something different, though, because with my grandpa and my grandma, I don't know that I had a big role in leading them to the Lord. 
you know, I'm, I'm just glad they're there. That's awesome. I personally look forward to meeting them. But it's different when you actually had a role in someone's life. And I'm not saying that, you know, Nick's in heaven because of me. But God uses people, and, he, and I know that he used conversations I had with Nick. I know that he used sermons that I spoke to Nick about. I know that he used small groups that Nick was part of. We are talking about even the small group that I'm doing right now, and Carol still has the book from, because Nick had that book, because I told Nick to buy that book when he was in another small group with me, and he was reading through that book. And uh, anyway, it's just, it's just so cool to be a part of, like, the reason why someone is Because, because that's, the, that's the greatest thing. That's the greatest thing in the world. If we have our eyes set on heaven, there's only two things that are going to be, that are currently in earth that are going to be in heaven. One, Jesus. Two, people. The only things on this planet, that everything else, everything else is gone. Uh, our houses, our cars, our political establishments, our arguments, our kingdoms, our countries, those things are all, they all go back in the box. But, but people in Jesus are the eternal things. And so if we're seeking eternal things, we are going to use our daily lives to try to influence people, to encourage people to come to Jesus. And God will, and the amazing thing is that God will, in, 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 in all of our stumbling and in all of our fumbling and in all of our inadequacies, he will use us to minister to other people, just like use Nick also to minister to other people. And, and I'm not the only one. There were several people throughout Nick's life that were praying for him and ministering to him. But it was, it was kind of comical uh, at Nick's funeral. A lot of people who knew Nick for years and years were telling us that, like, the Nick you're talking about, I didn't really know that Nick. It was, there was such a difference. And why? That's because Nick had already died. Like before Nick's funeral, Nick had already died to Nick. Nick was done. And Nick had given his life to God. And now Nick looked more like Jesus. He wasn't perfect. I mean, he wasn't walking on water or nothing. Carol could tell you he wasn't perfect. She can let you know about that. Uh, but, but seriously, like, like he was changed in a way that there's no church that could do that, there's no pastor that could do that, and there's no small group curriculum that could do that, that, that a part of him had literally just laid down and died, and he wanted to be what Christ wanted him to be, and he was already connected with Christ. And there was such a change that his own family members were like, yeah, I, I think maybe you knew him at a different stage in life. And I, yeah, different, a different stage. It's after his life was done, after he had lived his life, and he laid down his life. And you've got to have that time, that period in which you die, in which you lay down your life. That's what true Christianity is. That if it's not joining a church, it's not getting a card and, and identifying with a particular denomination. True Christianity is when you lay down your life. You're, 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 you're dying with Jesus, and then you are raised with Jesus. And if that's the case, then you're hidden in Jesus. People are looking for you, and they can't find you. And they're like, man, I don't know what happened to you. Just someone that I used to. Uh, I don't know. It's just, there's, there's a change, there's a marked change. And so he says, he says, seek the things which are above, but he also says, set your heart or set your desire on things which are above. Set your desires on. How do you do that when you, when you desire so many things down here? How do you do that when, when you have a fancy football team that really needs your attention, you know? How do you do that when there's like there's legitimate things, you know, like serious stuff, like fantasy football? How do you set your affections, your desires on a place you can't see? 
person you can't see, Jesus in heaven. Well, I think it's important that Paul's uh, speaking this into the, their church during the season when he is. They've been going for five years, like I said, and, and there's a bit of a cycle. So, so I want to end the sermon just looking at, just practical, looking at this cycle that I've noticed that so many people um, go through. I uh, went through the great effort of, of doctoring up a very um, high-tech little um, graph here. Because um, this is basically the cycle that I've seen uh, in people's lives and, and even in my own life, in my own relationship with God. If you can't see the bottom one, this bottom one is, is removed. Uh, so this is where we start. We start removed from God. Um, we are, we are uh, estranged from God. The, the Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short from the glory of God. We, he didn't intend us to be that way, but something happened called sin, which removed us from God. It's kind of like, I don't know if you saw Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, it's my favorite. It's a good old 90s movie, man. Like, was it 90s or 80s? I don't know. It was a long time ago. I, like, like, okay, okay so, so the movie starts, and they're big, and they're normal. And then something happens, and they get zapped. The, the baseball goes through, and, and they, they get shrunk, right? And that's basically, that's the gospel in a nutshell. We were normal and big. God created us awesome in the image of God. And then, bam, Adam and Eve sinned. And by the way, if they hadn't done it, you and I would have done it too. So we, we've all sinned, and it's, it's shrunk in us. And we really, we start off in the trash bag at the end of the lawn, if you remember how the movie goes. Uh, they, basically, they get swept up in, into a dustbin, put into the trash bag, and, and taken out to the end of the driveway. And that's where we start. And the journey for us back into the Father's house is full of so many dangers. The journey back to what God intended us to be. So difficult. A lot of people don't make it. But anyway, this is where we start. We start removed in the trash bag in the end of the lawn. And then at some point, God is the, the, the analogy. The, the analogy does break down a bit because... Technically, we're not chasing after God. God's chasing after us. So uh, in, in, in this story, God goes out into the yard, which his dad was out in the yard trying to find him. So, man, it does work. Come on, somebody. He got a little magnifying glass. He's like, oh. Anyway, um, he finds us in the bowl of, in the bowl of cereal. Uh, and so, no, we get, so we're removed from God. At some point, God finds us. He finds us in the Cheerio. And, uh, and he's so excited. And there's this romance that happens. There's this romance with, with God. Like, we are so into Jesus. Jesus is awesome. We tell everybody about Jesus. Jesus is, Jesus is the best thing ever. And, and there's this wonderful romantic period. And this is good. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But this is also true in almost all major relationships. Like, 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 like in a dating relationship, you start off single, you meet someone, it's going amazing. They are perfect, you know, for you. you they get you, you get them, finish each other's sandwiches. And, and, and so it's, it's cool to have a romantic season. There's nothing wrong with that. This happens in church too. People, people are, they're wandering around. They don't have a church for a while. Then they enter City Chapel, and it's like, wow, City Chapel's awesome. And they really get connected, and they start, they start loving it. And Pastor Harry's a great preacher, and the worship is always good, and the kids' ministry could do no wrong. And it's so much better than the church I came from, like way better, like so much better. But then if you stick around long enough in the romance stage, you'll eventually come to a place known as reality. That's where you find out City Chapel is really not that much better than every other church. In fact, it's not even that much different. We do meet in a weird uh, 
a place, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a warehouse, but yeah, and we have some distinguishing factors, but it's, it's really just the world's okayest church. And you find out why, uh, in your relationship with your spouse, you know, you, 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 you now realize that she puts the toilet paper on the roll the wrong way, you know, so that you're like doing this, this, this is not of God. So you should be doing this. But she's insistent on it. Really, she doesn't know how she puts it on. She can't remember. So she just throws it on any old way. And it's just, it's just, it's just unrighteousness. That's all it is. And, and, and you figure out that, you know, you have morning breath. You figure out. And those are the things we can joke about. There's actually other things which are far more contentious and divisive, really, that people, couples end up fighting about. Um, because this person is obviously evil, and you married an evil person, and and they married an evil person, and you're just you 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 get in your little castle and start lobbing grenades at each other for a few years, you know, and uh, insults, you know, just coming out all the time, just anger, because you've you've run into what what happened? You ran into reality, the reality that this person is not the person you thought they were. And it's so funny because this is this kind of how God works, right? Like he 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 tricks you into marrying. This is what, this is what my, my wife and I have always said, that God tricked us into marrying each other. We're so different, and yet the romance was so close, and we just could conquer the world together. And so you stand up before God and people and pledge your undying affection until death do us part. That's the trick. God asks you to make this massive commitment in a moment of romance before you even see the reality. So interesting. It's so interesting how he makes that work because he knows that if we if we enter into reality without commitment oftentimes the romance isn't enough to last through reality so after reality has hit reality in 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 the church that you're in by the way this is about a two year cycle uh two years usually takes to get to this final one which is a response so you've had a romantic period god's everything he's wonderful then the reality hits and he and, and, and he let your relative die. Then the reality hits and he doesn't answer your prayer. Reality hits and he's not, he's not, you're not feeling the, the warm, fuzzy feelings you were feeling before. And the reality hits and it feels like God's not there. And suddenly, or, 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 or even the reality of the context of all the promises that, you, that he told you in the romance. Like, for instance, uh, there's that classic Jeremiah uh, passage that says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. And that's wonderful, except when you realize that the context of that is, is that God is speaking that to a generation that he has just sent into captivity for 70 years for their sins. So he's like, just hold that thought for 70 years. <laughs> wait a minute, I thought a future and hope would like start like tomorrow or like maybe next week or, you know, like you're, you're, you're talking about my grandkids are going to have a future and a hope. And so sometimes the reality of what God has promised, the, the time period starts to hit us. Now we have a response to make and many of us opt to remove ourselves. We think we're removing ourselves from the cycle because we want to get out of that cycle. Truth is we're not, we're just repeating the cycle might be a divorce. You say, well, you know, I'm just done with this marriage. This person's not who I thought they were. I need, obviously, my, my mother was right, and I need somebody who da, 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 da. And then you go out and find somebody else. You have a romantic period, and it's great and wonderful. And then you get the reality, and then you have another chance 
to make a different response. And it's almost like we keep lapping the same mountain, keep going through the same cycle, unless we have a different response. And I think this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I want you to have a different response. I want you to set your affections. What does that mean, set your affection? How, how do I set my affection? Well, the one way that I've found in marriage is when you are in the reality stage to remember the romance, but also to make a commitment. Commitment that my response is yes before I even, before I even hit reality. That I'm going to finish this thing before I even start. I, I have decided that I'm going to finish this thing before even to make, to set your affections like you would a thermostat in your house to say, it is going to be this temperature in my soul. And I'm setting my, I'm setting my goal. I'm setting my, my eyes on Jesus and he's where I'm going, no matter what is, I'm going to be going through. And so it's so helpful to set your response because what happens is when you opt for removal, you think you're removing yourself from the process. You're really not because God's never going to stop pursuing you. You might leave him for a couple of years, and he's going to keep pursuing you, keep pursuing you, and then you're going to step into another church at some point, and you're going to fall in love. It's going to be amazing, and then you're going to hit the reality again. And he's going to call. He's constantly calling us to make a better response. Because what happens is we can we can opt to 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 go for isolation, and we can call it all kinds of. I I, I just need to recover. It's me and myself by, by myself. Okay, well, that wasn't working before. I don't think it's going to work again. So how about we have a different response? And the different response is to remember the romance and to fall in love again. That's what it means to be married for a long period of time, is to just keep falling in love with the same person over and over again. But this time at a higher level. This time at a level of we've been through some stuff. When I say I love you now, there's a stronger connection because I am saying I love you and even the parts of you I don't like. Even the parts of you I've seen that you weren't showing me before when we were dating, but I've seen now, I'm choosing to love. Choice to love is far greater than the, than the romantic persuasion to love, than the trap to love. And so, yeah, romance traps us, but, but commitment is what keeps us and what grows us. Some people say, well, I need, to, I need to be removed so that I can rise up to a level where I'm ready to commit. No, you don't grow to commitment, you grow through commitment. So that the level you're looking for is going to be found on the other side of your continued commitment to do what you decided to do in the beginning. It is in the process, it is in the process of leaping from, it, from your response. It's in the process of looking to heaven in, in, in a response where you really want to be focused on stuff that's going down here. It's in that process that you learn what you need to learn to stay where you need to stay. And so each level, and by the way, it keeps, it keeps going. These cycles keep going. So you make a commitment, and then you hit another moment of romance with God. Yeah. It's like a revival in your soul. It's awesome. Then you hit a new level of reality with God. Have a chance to respond. Respond by saying yes to him. You'll hit a new level of romance with God. Each level is built on the next. Each level is more fulfilling than the next, and each level is greater than the next. Until finally... It's funny because, like, if you look at newlyweds, they've been married five minutes. They look pretty similar to a healthy couple that's been married. Both look lovingly into each other's eyes. They both hold each other's hands while they're eating dinner. They both get the doors for he gets the door for her. And anyway, they do the polite stuff. They send nice text messages, all that, the whole deal. And they look the same. Both houses look the same. 
can't see the foundation until something something hits. When something hits, you go, oh, wow, those people, they're standing on something strong. These folks here now are faced with a response. A little shaky. But, but they can get there. They can get to the 50-year marriage if they will right now say yes to God, if they will right now make that commitment. Whatever it costs you, I don't know. It'll cost you everything eventually, so we all pay the same admission fee. Whatever it costs you, whatever stage you're at, maybe it's like, okay, God's calling me to be known. Sometimes that's, that's part of that removal. You've removed yourself for so long from a church, you want to go to a church where nobody knows you. I like that church because nobody knows me. Okay, well, maybe now God's asking you to be known. Actually say hi to somebody, get to know people. And if you do, you'll probably fall in love with them because we have some awesome people. Then you'll hit reality because we also have some real people. And uh, it'll be good for you. Because that the reality stage is really good because it gives you a broader context of who God is. By the end of your life, the goal is that you would know Jesus, not just the fluffy Jesus that you liked, not just the baby Jesus, or baby Jesus, not just baby Jesus, but like Jesus, real Jesus, all of him, good and the parts that we don't understand, difficult and the easy. So Father, we come before you right now, and we don't have an altar necessarily right now, but we just, right where we're at, I would encourage you just to say yes to Jesus just to make that decision before the, the storm hits. And maybe the storm's hitting right now. And okay, hey, it's a good time. Just go ahead. You've hit reality, and it's time to renew that commitment. That's, that's what it is. It's to fall in love with Jesus again. Fall in love with Jesus to make that decision that I'm not going to remove myself. I'm not going to go uh, to isolation. I'm not going to pull back and try to fix myself and get myself ready, but it is Jesus who can fix me. So love is this creative force. Commitment to stay in love is a creative gates very ability that we need to fulfill the promises that we make. So Lord, we say yes to you say yes to sticking with you. We say stay yes to setting our, we set our affections right now with the thermostat of our heart. We set our affection. Set your affection. That's, that's, the affection is the thing that, that creates the environment for everything else. So we set our affection. What we love will determine what, where we go and what we look for and what we desire. And so we set our affection on things above Christ. We want to know you, Lord. We want to be with you. We want to be close to you. Want others to see you as they get to know us. Want for you to be lifted up here in Austin. Not any one church, one pastor or ministry or anything. We want you to be seen. You are the answer for our country. You're the answer for our divisiveness, for our sin, for everything. So we say yes to you. Amen. Amen.